is obviously, and then hopefully we'll spend most of our time in chapter 3. But let's uh, start, and I'm just going to read verses 10 and 11, and then we'll pray. Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for the freedom that we enjoy in this country to come and openly study your word. And we don't ever want to take that for granted. I pray that we would uh, use it uh, for, for great benefit. Uh, I ask your blessing on your word and that you're, uh, you would just reveal to us the true meaning of what you would have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're like me, I, I grew up in uh, church, and uh, I know a lot of you have been in church for a long time, and if you've been in church for a long time, you've probably heard a lot of sermons on the various letters that Paul wrote, and um, you know, Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And having studied the book of 1 Corinthians before, um, I know that sometimes we have a tendency to think of the Corinthian church as being, um, you know, maybe the most immoral or the church that was full of the most carnal people. And that may be true. I mean, I'm, that, that's not my point to argue that. But uh, I, I think there's a lot of value though in studying the book of first corinthians um you know it may not be as appealing uh as you know maybe some of the other letters that paul wrote i mean it, it's kind of flattering we like to think of ourselves as i think sometimes we like to think of ourselves as a church that um would be similar to those churches where paul wrote letters where he gave a lot of compliments um you know who wouldn't want to think of themselves that way but uh, the book of First Corinthians is, is less complimentary. Um, you know, Paul really kind of hits them hard about a lot of areas in their life. And, um, but I think, there, I think there's great value in studying it. Even if we're not going through and experiencing a lot of the problems that that church was having, I, I think if we, as we look at it, we can certainly see the tendencies. And we can certainly see that we're the same kind of people they were, we face the same kind of trials and problems that they did, and so the solutions that God had for them are the same solutions that he would have for us. So if you break down the book, as I've been studying the book, um, I, I think the book is kind of divided into, in, in a sense, there's a long introduction. Uh, Paul is going to deal with the Corinthians about pride and uh, some wrong views that they have of things before he can move into those areas that uh, you know that he wants to hit specifically you know like the lawsuits and the, the marriage relationships and the, the misuse of spiritual gifts and things like that so like I said we're going to for the sake of time we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in chapters one and two we're going to have to move through those pretty quickly because I want to get to chapter three but in verse 11, Paul presents the problem, or, or probably a better way of saying it is a symptom of the problem. It's not really the problem. He says there's contentions among you. And uh, 
there's a there's there's a lot deeper problem than that i mean that like i said that's just a symptom of the problem the same the same thing is stated in verse 10 paul says there are uh there there he doesn't want there to be any divisions in the church and he knows that there are it's been reported to him that there are and again the the divisions aren't really the problem Uh, there's a lack of unity and that's not really the problem and hopefully as we move through um these first three chapters, we're going to see what the real problems were. And that's what Paul wants them to recognize. James 4.1 says that fights are the result of selfish desires. And Paul is encouraging everybody in the Corinthian church to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. He says they all have to have the same agenda. They all have to have the same goals and the same purpose. And they have to have God's agenda. And also in verse 10, uh, we don't want to miss the word all. Paul makes it perfectly clear that everyone in the church is supposed to be united. Unity is to, is to apply to everybody. It's not just, Paul's not writing this letter to just the leaders, however you want to define leaders, whether that's the pastors or, or the elders or the deacons or whatever. Paul makes it clear that everybody needs to have the same mind. Everybody needs to have the same goal. And one of the things I've noticed as we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians in in our Sunday school class is that there really is great continuity throughout the entire book. I mean, we've got it divided into 16 chapters, but the theme is very clear. Paul continuously comes back to the theme of unity all throughout the book. Even though he moves, uh, even though he addresses, a, you know, a lot of various topics, like lawsuits, you know, and all that kind of stuff, um, he keeps coming back to, and if you read the book carefully, you'll see that Paul keeps referring back to the fact that they need to be united in their purposes, and if they were, they wouldn't be going through a lot of the, the trouble that they're going through. And Paul wanted to know, Paul wanted them to know what was causing this division, and Paul knows that if he can get to them to recognize what the real problems are, then they're going to, as a church, be able to experience the great joy that goes along with being united. And he also wants them to know, he underscores the importance of this unity. I mean, Paul makes it perfectly clear this unity that he desires for the Corinthian church is critical. It's not optional. And throughout all of Paul's letters, we see that that's the case. Uh, since we're very close, turn back to Romans chapter 16, and, and we'll see in Romans chapter 16 how, how Paul makes it clear that this is very important, that there be no division. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, uh, says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our own Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So Paul says those that are causing division avoid. He's very clear. They're they're self-serving. The words that they speak may sound good. uh, People are easily deceived by them. Um, people are fooled by them, but Paul says that this is to be taken very seriously. In second, you don't have to turn to these passages, but in Second Timothy three five, he says, "From such turn away." 
And in Titus 3.10, Paul says, reject them. So we can see that this isn't something that Paul's going to take lightly, and, and which is why he opens the letter addressing this, because he knows they're not going to have any chance of solving all the problems that they have in a church if they're, not, if they're not going to be united in their goal and in their purpose. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, and we're not going to read all these verses, basically Paul says that the people were forming allegiances to certain men like himself and Peter and Apollos. And, uh, you know, in so many verses throughout chapters 1 and 2, Paul's basically going to say, that's not what I'm all about. I, I don't, Paul says, I don't crave that. I'm not after that. Paul isn't seeking personal recognition. He says, very plain and simple, Paul says, I'm about being a servant and preaching Christ and him crucified, and that's all. Paul says, that's what I'm about. And in verses 17 through 31, uh, Paul basically says, and I, of course I'm paraphrasing because we don't have time to look at all the verses, but basically Paul says, there are people that want to be associated with me because they think I'm so wise. And Paul says, if that's, if that's what they think, they've totally missed it. Paul says, it's not about me. It's not about me being so wise. And, and, but that's what people were desiring. They were, they were thinking, well, if I can be thought of in the same way that Paul is thought of, then I'll be well thought of. That's pride. That's seeking personal recognition, and that's not what Paul was all about. And that's what he's going to do in chapters 1 and 2 is dispel that. He wants people to put those thoughts aside. Paul always turns the conversation back to the Lord. In uh, those verses, 17 through, through 31, Paul turns their words and reverses them. You know, they're worried about wisdom, and Paul says, the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of the cross and the foolishness of God are wiser than the wisest of men. Pride was causing these people to want to be thought highly of. And, and so Paul just had to get very blunt with them. In verse 31, Paul said, No flesh should glory or boast in his presence. In other words, there's no room for pride in the church. That's what Paul was getting at. And in verse 24, Paul says that Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Or, or another way of what Paul is saying is he says, it's not us. It's not, Paul says, I'm not the power and wisdom of God. Peter's not the power and wisdom of God. Apollos is not the power and wisdom of God. It's, it's, it's Christ. And they were failing to see that. And in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, he's just underscoring the point that he's trying to drive home with them. And in chapter 2, verse 10, basically what Paul says is he's saying anything we know, we being, you know, Apollos and Peter and Paul, those that the people thought were so wise, Paul says anything we know did not originate with us. It was revealed to us by God. Paul does all of this to deflect any attention towards himself. That's what he's trying to do in chapters 1 and 2. He's saying, it's not about me. It's not about wise men. It's all about God. And you know, Paul is well aware of the fact that you can't give man any glory without taking it away from the Lord. And so that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to set their, put their focus and put their attention on the thing that it's supposed to be on, and that's God. And they've had their attention and their focus on men. In chapter 3, verse 1 
The Bible says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Paul could see the great potential that the Corinthians had. Uh, I mean, he realized, he, he certainly understood they hadn't realized that potential, but he could see that they had great potential. They were God's people. But you can sense Paul's frustration. Um, you know, Paul is saying, he says, I'm limited by your immaturity. I can't talk to you the way that I need to talk to you. I can't talk to you and say the things that I really need to say because you're baby Christians. He says, you are not able to handle meat. You're stuck on milk. And you can sense that Paul's frustrated. He's disappointed. Um, notice what he doesn't do, though. Uh, he doesn't question their salvation. Uh, Paul starts out in chapter 1 and immediately affirms their salvation. And all throughout the letter, you can see that Paul affirms their salvation. He doesn't doubt it. I, I, I've studied the book for, for several months, and there's only a couple places in the entire book where he even hints that there might be unbelievers among them. Paul, as frustrated he is, is as frustrated as he is with these people, uh, he keeps telling them they're Christians. They're they're Christians, and um, I, I don't really see how there can be any, can be any doubt that there can be a such thing as carnal Christians. I mean, that's what that's what Paul's telling them they are. I'm surprised we have as much controversy as we do about whether there can be. Because, again, that's what Paul is, is telling them. He's telling them that their flesh is still getting the victory. Uh, sound familiar? I, mean, I know in my life I, I get discouraged and frustrated because my flesh gets the victory. I mean, uh, it, it seems like my... my uh, it seems like when I go to the Lord in prayer, I can become very discouraged because my prayer usually starts out with something like this. Well, here I am again asking for forgiveness for the same thing I asked for last time and the time before that and the time before that. So I know, I think we all know that maybe the Corinthians aren't so much different than the rest of us. Maybe they're not. Uh, as different as sometimes we like to think that they were. But Paul says they're just babes in Christ. It's normal for babies to grow. I mean, we, we've heard that before. It's abnormal not to grow. Uh, and it's, it's very, it's, you know, it's, it's disappointing when we, when we see Christians, or if we are Christians, where we've been saved for years or decades and we're we're not growing. We're, we're, we're in the same spiritual condition that we were, you know, shortly after we got saved. It's not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, but yet that's where Paul found himself in dealing with these people. He said they were baby Christians. They hadn't grown. And it wasn't because they, it wasn't because they didn't have opportunities. Um, Paul had been there. Apollos had been there. Peter had been there. Paul mentions later in the letter that he's sending Timothy again. He's going to send another guy besides Timothy. So, you know, it wasn't that they didn't have opportunity. And 
we probably have much more opportunity than they ever did. I mean, I can, it's hard for me to even fathom that we don't. I remember, you know, a week or two ago when Pastor said he had like 21 Bibles just here. And, I, you know, most of us probably aren't even aware of how many Bibles we have. I, I haven't gone around my house and counted them up, but there's sure plenty. And, and we've got lots of resources. And when I started... Um, you know, when I started studying the book of 1 Corinthians, I went to Pastor, and I, I asked him if he had some commentaries, and he, he handed me four, each one like this thick. And, uh, <laughs> and I had some resources at home, and, and sometimes when I'm preparing for my Sunday school and I, I'm looking at a particular passage, you know, sometimes even after I read all four of those commentaries and several of my study Bibles and different things, you know, I still have some questions about some of those passages. And, uh, you know, I just go over to the computer and I type that in and do a search on it. And it comes back with like 900,000 hits. And, you know, I don't even know where to start. And, you know, it asks me, you know, well, there's 50 different translations that I can look at the verse in. And, you know, how many different languages that I can look at the verse in. And we got 24-7 access to those helps. I mean, the Corinthians didn't have that. We... You know, it's amazing. If I'm too lazy to read, I can play the audio version of the commentary on my computer. You know, it's just amazing the the potential that we have. Um, when I was when I was young, when I was about ten years old, I got a couple of rabbits, and uh, I pretty much had a, f- a few rabbits off and on for for the last thirty years. And uh, you know, in all those years. There's probably been hundreds of litters of baby rabbits born, and I can only remember one time in all those years that a, that a mother rabbit only had one. And that little rabbit was so fat, I never seen a little rabbit so fat. There was no competition for the mother's milk. And, you know, usually there's like 8 or 10 or 12 or even 14, and, and you know, the competition is fierce for the mother's milk, and you know, you check on them after a couple of days, and a few of them have died, and there's runs, and, you know, there's a lot of competition for the milk. And uh, just this week, I was looking at some of them, and I, I held two of them up, one in each hand, and I was showing Alexis. I said, these two rabbits, these two baby rabbits are from the same litter, and one was twice as big as the other because they grow at different rates depending on how much milk they can get. But... Who, of us, who, who among us could claim that we're not growing as a Christian because we don't have opportunity? First uh, Peter 2.2 2 says, Desire the sincere or rich milk of the word that you may grow thereby. I don't think we lack opportunity, we lack desire. I, I know that's, that's the only thing I could blame my spiritual immaturity on is my lack of desire. It's certainly not lack of opportunity, it's not for a lack of resources. But, but that's where Paul found himself, and that, that was the kind of people that he was dealing with. In verse 3, the Bible says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Paul said the proof of their carnality was obvious. It was jealousy and strife, divisions, arguments. He said basically they were acting like unbelievers. And, you know, these sins were very serious. Um, Throughout the New Testament, a lot of times when lists of sins are given, 
Envy is listed right alongside adultery and murder, and yet we sometimes kind of think of others as being so much worse than some, and, and yet it doesn't appear that God takes that position. God takes envy and jealousy and divisions very seriously. Uh, envy caused Cain to murder Abel, caused Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. Korah to lead a rebellion against Moses and Saul to try to kill David. And on and on and on the list goes of what envy resulted in. And we're to put it aside. I mean, it can destroy a church. We're not to do things out of jealousy or, or envy. And that's most of the time where strife originates. In verse 4, the Bible says, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And that's obviously a rhetorical question. Paul says, you are carnal. You're worldly. You're behaving as unbelievers. And what does it mean to be of someone? People like to be associated with, with winners or successful people. I remember when I was really young, hadn't had any interest or exposure to sports at all, and uh, one of my friends came over, and, and he was wearing a, a jersey of, of his favorite team. And, you know, I said to him, not trying to be funny at all, I, I was just being, you know, very inquisitive. I said, what are you wearing that for? And he said, well, they're my team. And, and again, I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, I was naive, a lot more so than I am now. And I said they're your team I mean do you go to the practices I think he was wearing like a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt do you go to the practices do you do you play in the games you don't even live in that city or that state we mean they're your team but I didn't know I mean I hadn't been exposed to that I hadn't a clue I I was really just you know puzzled by it I, I just hadn't I've been hadn't been exposed to sports but that's, you know, that's what it means to be of something. They wanted to be associated with certain types of success or people that were well thought of. I mean, think about it. The Steelers back in the 70s, they were the team, you know, four Super Bowls. And that's what people want. And that's what people were trying to accomplish in trying to align themselves with certain people in influential and leadership positions in the church. They thought, if I can be associated with these people, then I'll be well thought of. And Paul wasn't going to go there. You know, Paul doesn't even speculate as to what exactly it was about some of these people that was attracting people to them, that was, was causing people to rally around them. Paul didn't even speculate on that. You know, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, it's because somebody's either a really good teacher or a really good preacher or they've got a certain style or they're a dynamic speaker or they're the smartest. Paul didn't get into that. He's, that's irrelevant. Paul said the reasons are irrelevant because it was wrong. Their allegiance was supposed to be to Christ. It wasn't supposed to be to individuals and to people. And, and that's what the people were, were doing. They were striving for recognition by, recognition by hoping to be associated with certain people. And again, the end of the verse, Paul makes it clear. Paul says, that's, that's carnality. That's pride. That's wrong. In verse 5, the Bible says, who then is Paul? And of course, Paul's writing this. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. 
I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul says, who are men? We're just servants. We're just servants of the Lord. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed as I've studied, we've, we've actually gone through several of the letters in, my Sunday, in our Sunday school class the last several years um, that Paul has written. And, you know, Paul constantly and very consistently is, you know, he's, he's a perfect example of humility. He's always diverting the attention away from himself and his own accomplishments and pointing everyone to God so that God gets the glory. And I've noticed that even throughout the, the letter to the Corinthians, that Paul very consistently deflects the attention away from himself. Uh, Paul lists, notice that Paul, when, if, you, if you look at the first several chapters, uh, every time Paul gives the list of, of those men, whether uh, you know, him and Apollos and Peter and those, those men that the people weren't supposed to be rallying behind and exalting, Paul always lists himself first. He doesn't take the opportunity to, to run down Apollos and Peter and say, you know, those guys really aren't such good guys and they're not really that great of teachers. I don't know why, you, you know, you're really... He concludes himself. He always mentions himself first. He says, your allegiance shouldn't be to me. He says, I'm just a servant. And he doesn't... Paul doesn't, take, doesn't look at it as an opportunity to exalt himself above the other men. Uh, in, in reality... You know, Paul does just the opposite. Uh, if, you, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, quick, uh, real quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll just look at an example of this that, that Paul is doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, verse uh, 9, 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles that are not me to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was, bespoke, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Now, now if you weren't careful, when you, when, you, when, you, when you saw that phrase, you might think, okay, there's Paul having a tendency to start bragging about his own accomplishments, but, but he didn't stop there. Look at the next phrase. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul immediately, so that there's no doubt, he says, I'm not trying to attract attention to myself. I'm not trying to brag and exalt myself. He says, everything that I've done is by the grace of God. And that's the only way I've done it. And, and then verse 11, whether therefore it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. So Paul says, whether I or they, in other words, Paul says it doesn't matter who gets the recognition or who gets the glory or who gets the credit. He says, you believed and that was the, you know, that's the good that came out of it. And Paul's not seeking self, you know, self-fulfillment in doing that. Okay, turn back to chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God, or, yeah, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Notice that Paul recognized that God gives each of us different gifts and abilities. Um, you know, we, we don't want to miss that. I mean, and there's no indication as you study this passage that Paul or, or that the, you know, the Holy Spirit is indicating that one is any more important than the other. That one is to be 
looked at with any more glory than the other. Uh, God doesn't exalt one over the other. Paul, you know, he says some teach, some preach, some assist those that teach and preach, some do this, some do that. Everybody has their own gift. Everybody has their own ability. God doesn't give people gifts that aren't essential. Everybody that receives something from the Lord, God gave it to them for a specific purpose. They may not, all the gifts that people have may not be visible to us. I mean, we use phrases like, you know, that person is really kind of a behind-the-scenes person. But, you know, with God, there's no such thing as behind-the-scenes. Everything that everybody does, God is noticing. Nothing's going unnoticed. It may go unnoticed by men, but it's not going unnoticed by God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that whole chapter is devoted to the fact that we are all one body, but that that one body has many members, and each member is important and necessary. Paul says it doesn't matter whether you're a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear or even a hidden part, every member of the body is necessary and serves a specific purpose. I'm constantly reminded how little we accomplish on our own. I mean, obviously we accomplish nothing on our own, uh, speaking from God's perspective, but even from a human perspective. We, we do so much as a team. I went to a uh, went to a conference recently down at the Quest Center. It was uh, something I had to go to for work. It was a Microsoft conference, and uh, there were several hundred people in the the session that I went to. And I noticed one thing that the speaker said that caught my attention. It's probably the only thing I remember actually. <laughs> uh, but he said, in the in the latest. Uh, update or the latest release of their Windows product, which is just one of their many products, just in that one update, that they had 5,000 software engineers and a total of 10,000 people working on that one update to that one product. And that, that just underscores the teamwork that's involved. That, you know, we, and, you know, we're not going to accomplish anything. I mean, even humanly speaking, obviously, again, God God enables us to do everything that we do, but even humanly speaking, we're not going to accomplish much on our own. We have to work as a team. Verse 7 says, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Paul says the servants aren't anything. The servants aren't important. It's God that's important. It's God that is the one that provides the results. You see, the, the real problem, I mean, getting back to, you know, in, verse, in, in chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11, Paul was only mentioning the symptoms of the problem, but the real problem was that the Corinthians had a wrong view of God. They were exalting men instead of exalting God. Anytime you exalt men, you're going to rob glory from God that he deserves. And that's what they were doing. And Paul's pointing that out, that God is the one who was responsible for the results, for the increase that was taking place in their church. In verse 8, the Bible says, Now he that, planteth and he, that, he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul was using the example of himself and Apollos earlier, and he's basically saying we're one. We're on the same team. We're not in competition with one another. It was heartbreaking to Paul that people would be choosing sides. 
That wasn't what he was all about. That wasn't what Apollos was all about. They were wanting Christ to receive the glory, not themselves. They were on the same team. They had the same goal. They had the same Lord. There was no competition between them. And there wasn't any point in arguing over who got the recognition because Paul said God should get all the recognition. But notice the last part of verse 8. We don't want to miss this. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So even though we work as a team, God's keeping track of who's making the contributions. God's keeping track so that someday each one will be rewarding, rewarded according to their own con- contribution. You know, in this world, you may get some glamour or glory as a result of the team's effort, but if you weren't contributing, God knows that. God knows if you're one of those that is riding the shirt tails and essentially doing nothing. God's keeping track of it all. And only God could. Only God can, can uh, appropriately keep track of who deserves the credit and who deserves the recognition and what type of reward is due. I remember when I started working at FDR back in 1987. I think at that time it was the largest employer in the state of Nebraska, a huge company. And uh, I remember right away that I noticed that they had these awards. They had, this, they had an Employee of the Quarter Award and they had an Employee of the Year Award. They called it the Fat Cat Award. And uh, I noticed that when they gave out these awards, there was a lot of strife, a lot of resentment, a lot of bickering. I mean, it was, it was really nasty. I mean, you know, people, oh, I worked way harder than that person. I can't believe they got that Employee of the Quarter Award. I deserve that. I put in more hours. I did a better job, blah, 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 blah. What would they expect? I mean, here, it, from, a, from a human perspective, you've got thousands of employees, all making, or not all, but uh, certainly many, making very significant contributions. How are you going to pick one and say, oh, that's the guy that gets the, the award? I mean, that would, be, that would be almost impossible. Of course there was going to be resentment and strife and bickering. But, you know, it's not going to be that way with God. Nobody's going to be able to stand before God and say, well, you know, I'm suffering an injustice, God. You're not, you know, you, that guy, uh, you gave him a little bit too much. He didn't deserve that much. I, I deserve a little bit more than he did. There's not going to be any of that. God won't have any trouble, you know, millions or billions of Christians down all through the ages. God will be able to figure out exactly who deserves what and who who labored and, and who did what. And, and it's just not going to be a problem. And, and again, one of the things that Paul's trying to get these people to realize is that that's what they should be looking towards, not recognition here on earth, but just faithfully serving God and then letting him handle the recognition when we get to eternity. And Paul placed basically little or no value on human assessment of his work anyway, uh, good or bad. I, I mean, Paul... You know, he cared what people thought. I mean, he certainly wanted to make sure that he had a positive testimony. Uh, He wanted to make sure that he wasn't a stumbling block to others. But, I mean, in terms of Paul needing his ego boosted, Paul didn't need that. He didn't need the Corinthians to give him approval or uh, to substantiate his ministry. Paul wasn't looking for that. He knew that he was serving the Lord. He wasn't serving them, looking for recognition from them. That's not what he was about. 
In verse 9, the Bible says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Notice the emphasis there is on the fact that we're laborers. We're not owners. You know, the husbandry is the farm. We don't own the farm. We just work on the farm. We just work on the building. We don't own the building. God owns it. And again, that, that's one of the things that Paul is continuing to try to drive home that point. He's saying, it's not my church. It's not Peter's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not your church. It's not... It's God's church. That's the problem that they had. That was what was the source of the division and strife. They were functioning as though the church belonged to them. As if it was something that they could divvy up and they could each have a piece of. And Paul says, no, you, you, you haven't understood your place. Your place is to be a servant. Your place is to allow God to get all the glory. In verses 10 through 15, and, and we don't have time to look at these in a lot of detail, but in verses 10 through, th through 15, Paul cautions them on the motives for the work that they're doing. Paul says that the foundation, well, let's, let's just go ahead and read them. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's a word of warning and caution. Paul says it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's about everything that we're doing. The foundation has to be Jesus Christ. He has to be the focal point of everything that we're doing as a church. And Paul's making that perfectly clear. In the context of verse 8, Paul is going to continue, though, to remind them that there, yeah, there's a reward. I mean, Paul doesn't totally dismiss the fact that there are rewards and that there, are rec there is recognition, but what he's doing is he's telling them they're looking for the, that recognition in the wrong place. They're looking to get that recognition from people here on earth in this life, and Paul says, no, it's going to happen later. Look at verse 13, or verse, uh, verse 12. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. The day. We know what that day is. That's, that's future. That's in eternity. So they're looking for recognition now, and Paul says, you're not going to get it now. Or if you get it now, it's not going to be the right kind. It's not going to be God's stamp of approval. The real stamp of approval is going to come in eternity. It, going on, it says, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. There's not going to be any question. The true nature of, all, of everything that we've ever done will be revealed in eternity. Uh, basically, that fire is going to reveal whether or not anything we've done, we've done has any eternal value. And then, uh, I just want to look at three or four verses in chapter 4. Because we don't... Chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. You know, I mean, that's, you know, Paul's saying, I really don't care what you think, as far as the Corinthians. Paul says, I don't, I, I'm not really concerned with what the, the church at Corinth thinks of my labors and my work, good or bad. 
Paul wasn't about to let his ego be inflated by, by them heaping a bunch of praise on him, and he also wasn't going to be dejected because of them heaping a bunch of praise on somebody else or essentially criticizing him. He says it, it just wasn't important because he knew they weren't, they weren't adequate to judge his work. But not only that, going on, he says, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Paul says, I don't even trust myself to give a proper assessment of my own work because I know my own judgment is skewed. Paul says, it wouldn't matter. When I stand before God in eternity, God may say, well, you know, the Corinthians thought you did a really good job and you thought you really did a good job, but you know, I don't really think so. I mean, Paul knew that that potential existed. So he's basically saying, praise that's heaped on me here on earth, whether it's by you or myself, is really not much value. What really counts is what God thinks. He says, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that, that judgeth me is the Lord. It's God's opinion that counts. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So his encouragement, his advice to the Corinthians, refrain from judging other people's work. He says, until the Lord comes, the true value of it's not going to be revealed. Our, our judgment is we fool ourselves. Our heart is deceitful. If we try to assess our own work and, and pat ourselves on the back, we're going to misjudge. Paul says, God is the one, we, and we only see what's going on externally. We only see the results of the work that takes place outwardly, but God knows what the motives are. God sees inwardly. God sees the motives of the heart. You know, when I first read that verse 5, as I was studying that for, for Sunday school a couple of months, that, that's a pretty, that's kind of a scary verse. I mean, not that we shouldn't know that, but... You know, basically, who's going to fool God? Everything that we do, we may fool people here on earth with our motives, but God's not fooled. And someday, our motives are going to be laid right out. Everybody's going to be able to see, oh, that's why they did that. And that's, you know, that's a humbling verse to have to consider. So basically, Paul says in the final analysis, it doesn't matter whether we commend ourselves it only matters that God commends us. So here's the bottom line. Here, here's what I take from this. I mean, and, and I think basically chapters 1 through 3 and, and even working into chapter 4 basically serve as a pretty long introduction to the, to the entire book of 1 Corinthians. But here's what I take from this. God's making it perfectly clear that pride and selfish ambition destroy a church. That's what leads to division, wanting to have the glory for ourselves. We need to set aside pride and our own selfish desires for the good of the church and the unity of the church. Most importantly, so that God will receive all the glory. Ultimately, God is the one who is going to get all of the recognition, and so we might as well give it to him right now. So, All right, let's go ahead and stand and I'll close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. I think I'm on time. Actually got a minute to spare. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, and uh, Father, I pray that we would each examine ourselves and, and uh, that we would have proper motives.
that we would serve you with pure hearts, with pure motives, and that it would be it would be our real desire that we bring glory to you, that we're not seeking recognition and glory for ourselves. Uh, I pray your blessing on this church, that you would continue to, to sustain it, guide and direct it, and uh, we're just so grateful for your goodness to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.